following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we've, we've passed the halfway mark now in James, and uh, we're going to finish off this morning chapter 3 in the book of James, uh, where James talks about the subject of wisdom. So just a shorter passage in verse 13 in James. So if you've got a Bible there in front of you, or if you've got it on your device, open it up. And uh, let me read this uh, from James, thir- James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. I want to do just a little thought experiment as we start this morning. I want you to think of somebody you know or know of. You don't have to know them personally, but someone for you who really embodies wisdom. Just think in your mind, just draw their name, their face to mind. Someone that you, you, would, you would say, that's a wise person. That's a person I would consider to be, have real wisdom about them. Uh, and then I want you to think, what is it about that person that makes them wise? What, why do you think why do you perceive them as a person of wisdom? Is it, is it, is it what they do? Is it what they say? Um, what, what makes them wise? I don't know about you. I find that second question harder to answer than the first question. It's not that hard, I think, to, to draw to mind someone who we think is a person of wisdom, that we look up to as a person who has wisdom. I think it's a bit harder to, to try and quantify. What is it, though? that makes them wise. And we might come up with things like they give good advice or they always seem to know what to do or they have this insight into situations. And that's all part of wisdom, isn't it? But I'm not sure that really sums up exactly what wisdom is. Sometimes we find it hard to put our finger on exactly what is it about that person that makes them wise because wisdom might look completely different in one situation to another situation. Uh, We know it when we see it, don't we? Wisdom. We know, when you're in the presence of someone who has wisdom about them, you know it, you hear it, you see it, you sense it. Uh, we, know it when, we know it when it's lacking, right? When you're in the presence of someone who is really unwise, we know it, we see it, we sense it. Uh, but sometimes we just find it hard to put our finger on what makes wisdom wisdom. And that's why James writes this passage. To unfold the nature of wisdom. What is wisdom and how do we cultivate this biblical virtue in our lives? How do we become people who are truly wise in the way the Bible understands and defines wisdom? Uh, In a sense, the whole book of James is a book of wisdom. Uh, James, in every part of this book, is writing about how to live wisely. All these disparate topics that he talks about that sometimes seem disconnected from each other, they're all held together around how do we live wisely? 
as Christians, when we face trials, when we face temptations, when we feel angry uh, in the way we talk to each other? How do we express wisdom? This is a book of practical wisdom. In fact, some people classify James as wisdom literature. They say it's basically the Proverbs of the New Testament. This is a book of wisdom literature. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but either way, the whole book is a book of wisdom. And so in this passage, James is, is honing in on the topic of wisdom itself and saying, what, where does wisdom come from? What does it lead to? And how do we allow God to, to get this quality, this virtue into our lives so that we truly become people of wisdom? And I would say this is much needed in our lives. I'd say it's much needed in our world. Would you agree? Wisdom. We look around us, world leaders, uh, celebrity, people of notoriety, and we ask, like Paul asked, where is the wise person? Where is the wisdom? A lot of knowledge today, right? We live in a knowledge society. We live in a knowledge economy where information, knowledge, these are the new commodities. Uh, your phone and your pocket has got more knowledge than you can possibly ever use or access. Any question you want to know about, there's no more conversations. We sit around the dinner table going, you know, who was that person again? And who was that actor? And what movie had they been? No, you just answer that now in a second by pulling out your phone. Google it. You've got it, right? We've got all the knowledge we could ever possibly want. But the phone in your pocket's not going to make you wise, is it? The, the, the phone buzzing in your pocket right now is not going to make you a wise person. It can deliver knowledge to you in vast quantities like never before. And yet we seem to be lacking this virtue of wisdom. Wisdom is something else. It comes from somewhere else. And James is going to tell us where. So I want to follow what James talks about this uh, virtue of wisdom. And the way that James sets this up, just to give you the roadmap here, is he really talks about two kinds of wisdom. He talks about a true wisdom and then a false wisdom or like a fake wisdom, a shadow wisdom. There's, there's just a, a phantom wisdom that exists alongside true wisdom. And the image that's been in my head as I've studied this passage and these two types of wisdom is the image of a tree. And James doesn't use this metaphor, but I've found it helpful. Uh, he talks about wisdom kind of like having roots and then branches, and then leaves or fruit in terms of what it produces in our lives. So I'm going to use that metaphor a little bit just to give us something to hook this onto, the metaphor of, of these two trees, these two trees of wisdom, true wisdom, false wisdom, okay, as we go through. And I'll jump around the passage a little bit to bring out the meaning of what James says. So first of all, think about, think about the roots of wisdom. Think about the source, the ground of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Where does true wisdom come from? James tells us in verse 17, just look at the beginning of that verse. Verse 17, he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven. Just sit with those two words for a minute. The wisdom that comes from heaven. Underline that if you've got a pen. The wisdom that comes from heaven. Heaven. James is setting up a dualism here where there's a wisdom from heaven and there's a wisdom from earth or from below. And by saying wisdom from heaven, what's he saying? It's, it's, it's from above, it's from heaven, it's from God. This is the first thing to understand. True wisdom is not something that's going to come from you. Real wisdom, if we want wisdom, it's not going to come from conjuring it up. It's not going to become from being smarter. It's going to come from God. Wisdom is a gift that God bestows upon people. It is a gift from his hand. That's why James says in chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all, and it will be given from him. Wisdom 
finds its origin in the character and the nature of God, who is the God of all wisdom. And God then graciously bestows wisdom upon us. But it's from his hand. It's from God. And this resonates exactly with the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, the great wisdom book in the Old Testament, which says, Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we might not naturally connect those two things, the fear of the Lord and wisdom, but that's what Proverbs says, and that's effectively what James is saying. If you want true wisdom, it starts by fearing God. It starts with the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not about being scared of God like you'd be scared of a bully. It's not about cowering before this capricious God who's going to smite you. The fear of the Lord is this deep reverence that we have for a holy God. It's this deep reverence for God as the sovereign of the universe. God as king of all. It's recognizing this world is God's world. This is my father's world. It's not my world. This is not my story. This is God's story. He's the author. He's the main character. I'm part of the story, but this is his story. This is his world. God defines reality. God defines life. This is essentially what this means is we live with a theistic worldview. That's what it boils down to. We live with a theistic worldview, which is a view of the world with God at the center of it. We see through that lens. This is a world that revolves. God gives meaning to this world. God gives purpose to this world. God defines the very structure of reality. That's a theistic worldview. That's the beginning of wisdom. Because wisdom starts by seeing the world rightly. It starts by seeing the world as it is. That this is not our world, it's God's world. That's where wisdom begins. See, wisdom is not just giving good advice, knowing what to do in situations. It has deep roots. It goes all the way down to a fear of the Lord living with a theocentric or theistic worldview with God at the center of it. And so the opposite of that, James says, the opposite of true wisdom is this false wisdom. And look at the origins of this wisdom in verse 15. Such wisdom, that's wisdom in inverted commas, wisdom, false wisdom, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic James says. So there's, there's this earthly kind of wisdom, which is just exactly the opposite of true wisdom. That rather than beginning with a theistic worldview, false wisdom begins with an atheistic worldview, which just excludes God from the equation. It finds no room for God, or certainly not the God of the Bible. It excludes God, and therefore it looks at the world and it sees no need for God. It has an earthly, unspiritual worldview, which is just this naturalistic worldview. What I see, what I touch, what I perceive with my senses, that's all there is. That's it. That's my whole framework for living. Humanity, they're the highest beings in the world. We're not answerable to God. We're not accountable to God. There is no God. That's an atheistic worldview. And James says that's really the origins of a false kind of wisdom. And ultimately, he says it's even demonic, not in the sense that everyone who holds that worldview is possessed by a demon, but in the sense that behind that worldview, who's the one who really drives that worldview in the spiritual realm? It's the evil one. He loves people to hold that worldview. He loves people to hold that idea there is no God. God's unnecessary. God's excluded. Because then human beings no longer think they're answerable to a creator. Human beings no longer think they need to submit their lives to a creator. It's an atheistic worldview. It's the root of false wisdom. Now, none of this, you think about true wisdom, think about false wisdom, none of this prohibits people who are not Christians 
who may have a false kind of wisdom, from still having incredible understanding about things. Just because you don't fear God, because you're not a Christian, doesn't mean that you may not have incredible insight or incredible learning or incredible knowledge and skill. I mean, you think about someone like Stephen Hawking, who passed away, the physicist who recently passed away. So, I mean, I haven't read any of his stuff in depth, but from what I see, from what I understand, an incredible mind, an incredible contribution to science, to, to quantum physics, unbelievable insight and knowledge. And yet if James looked at Stephen Hawking, he would say, there's no wisdom. There's incredible knowledge, but that's a different thing to real wisdom because Stephen Hawking, by his own admission, was an avowed atheist. He lived out of a different story, totally different story. Saw no, no need, no room for God. In fact, he explained it as science has now made God unnecessary. We don't need, maybe, maybe previous, in previous centuries, before we were enlightened, we needed to explain certain things by reference to a God. But that's no longer needed now because science has answered these questions and science has closed the gap and so science has therefore rendered God unnecessary. In fact, Stephen Hawking described religion as a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. That's, that's basically what it is. So, so he's, he's, a, he's a total atheist, but he could still make an incredible contribution to science. I think there's a certain sadness there because you think, well, what if, those, what if that mind had been employed in the service of God? You know, what if that mind had been, what if he had done science as a Christian scientist, you know, in, in, the, in the vein of Pascal or Newton, you know, who, who understood Christian science as thinking God's thoughts after him? Uh, what richness, what depth there could have been. But we still need to be able to distinguish and say a person may have tremendous understanding and skill and knowledge, and learning, and yet lack wisdom. Should we read Stephen Hawking to understand more about quantum physics? Absolutely. Should we, re- should we read Stephen Hawking to understand how to be a wise person? Probably not, because he didn't possess true wisdom, at least in the way James defines it and describes it. True biblical wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom's grounded in a fear of the Lord. Okay, so that's the roots of wisdom. And then the question comes, well, what, is, what kind of life does this produce? These two different forms of wisdom, two different root systems, what kind of lives do these forms of wisdom generate? Well, first look at true wisdom. And James says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. It's interesting that James ties wisdom and humility together so tightly. We, that might not phase us at all, but that was remarkable in James's day, that he would do this, that he would bind wisdom and humility together because this was not the way that wisdom was described in James's day. I mean, think about James's context for a minute. So James is writing in the first century, and the first century world, I mean, this was the Greek world. It was the Roman Empire, but the Greeks, the Greek culture and language and philosophy was still incredibly prevalent. And the Greeks, they were all about wisdom. I mean, the word philosophy, we get it from the Greeks. It means the love of wisdom. Think Socrates, think Plato, think Aristotle. The wisdom, the Greeks spent their time coming up with new 
and various forms of wisdom. And in all these churches James is writing to around the Mediterranean world, wisdom, this was just the air that you breathed. And all these different currents of philosophical and wisdom, thought and literature were just permeating out through society. For for the Greeks, the, the word wisdom is the word sophia or sophos. And in its origins, it just had a kind of neutral meaning. It just meant understanding, skill, learning. But it came to mean something else. It came to mean this kind of cunning where we use situations to our own advantage. It kind of mean shrewdness or the kind of cunning where you would get ahead in life. This was a society where there was a very heavy uh, ladder, very socially stratified world, and you're always looking for your opportunity to move up a rung, to try and get ahead. And so you'd use wisdom to try and manipulate, to try and coerce, try and maneuver, outwit, outlast, outplay. It's like one big game of Survivor. You're just constantly looking for your moment to try and maneuver your way ahead, and wisdom was the means by which you did it. So wisdom was all this cunning that you developed socially, politically, and so on to be able to get ahead, push yourself ahead, gain some advantage over other people. It's nothing to do with humility. It's all to do with self-interest and self-preservation and self-advancement. That's how the Greeks understood wisdom. And so James comes along and he starts talking about a wisdom that produces humility in our life. It's a totally different stream of wisdom. But one that's deeply grounded in the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition, they understood this wisdom from the beginning. And what's more, James had a brother called Jesus who demonstrated a different kind of wisdom. James had a brother who died a gruesome death on a cross. And when the Greeks looked at that, I mean, when, when, the, when the Greek mind looked at crucifixion, they thought of it as utter foolishness. That is the person who was crucified. Utter foolishness. And the idea that you would follow a king and claim someone to be your king who gets themselves crucified. The way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, he says the message of the cross is foolishness. It's the opposite. It's everything that wisdom is not. In fact, the word that Paul uses in in that chapter, it literally means moronic. And it's not a nice word, I don't know with any kids here, but it's not, it's not a nice word, I'm sorry. But the way Paul says is for the Greek mind looking at the cross, they basically say, you're a moron. You think that person is the king? You think that person is your ruler and they died on the cross? That is moronic. And here's James coming along and saying, what Jesus has done on the cross has turned wisdom on its head. Because from that place of dying the most despised, ugly, gruesome, degrading, dehumanizing death we can conceive of, Jesus overturns the wisdom of the world. Jesus takes all the wisdom of the philosophers and completely subverts it and upends it. From this position of despised humility, Jesus overcomes the world. He overcomes death. He overcomes the grave. He overcomes the evil one. He overcomes sin. He overcomes the the world and introduces new creation, turns the world on its head, defeats the kingdom of darkness, and brings about God's kingdom, God's new creation on earth. And he does it from the cross. He does it through crucifixion. And he forever changes the nature of wisdom. 
That's why Paul says God's made the wisdom of the world foolishness. That Greek wisdom, that's not going to get you anywhere anymore. Now what's going to get you anywhere is the wisdom of the cross because only through the cross do we take hold of real life, real meaning, and real purpose. So now the, the, the wisdom of God is forever shaped by the cross. That's how we've got to think about it. True wisdom will always be cross-shaped wisdom. True wisdom will also always be cruciform wisdom. It will be cross-shaped wisdom, and it will exist in humility. You see, you see someone who you think is wise, and they don't have humility. They're an arrogant person, a proud person, a self-promoting person. They don't have wisdom. You might think they do, but they don't. James says categorically impossible because God has fused together humility and wisdom. So the truly humble person is the wise. The truly wise person is the humble. person may have a kind of faux wisdom about them, but if they truly have pride in their heart, that's not wisdom. It cannot be. It's disallowed by the very fact of Jesus' crucifixion, which has forever fused together wisdom, true wisdom, with humility before God. And it follows on, doesn't it? Because if you have the fear of the Lord... You, you see the world as it is. This is not my world. It's my Father's world. That's going to lead to humility in your life, isn't it? That you recognize I'm not the creator. I'm the creature. I'm not the one in charge. I'm a servant. I'm not the one calling the shots. I'm the one who needs to submit my life to God. That's going to breed in you a certain kind of humility. One follows on from the other. But the opposite of that, this false wisdom, where does that lead? Not to humility. But James describes it in verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Where false wisdom leads, this false wisdom rooted in an atheistic worldview, it leads to selfish ambition, bitter envy. There's a lot we could say about those two things, but basically they're two sides of the same coin. Envy is pushing others down because they've got it better than you or you think they've got it better than you. Selfish ambition is puffing yourself up. It's pulling yourself up and pushing yourself forward. Just two different dynamics, pushing others down, lifting yourself up. Envy, selfish ambition. And that's the mechanics of life, isn't it? How many people do we know who live like that? How much of the time do we live like that? Pushing others down, lifting ourselves up. Pushing others down, lifting ourselves up. That's how people go through life. And James says it's false wisdom. It's completely the, the counterpoint of the wisdom that Jesus came to introduce to the world. I used to work with a guy like this. Not in the church. In my, my former life in PR and this agency, one of our directors was a guy. Looking back now, I can see clearly he was a bully. We, we didn't talk about workplace bullying that much 15 years ago, but that's, there was a classic case of workplace bullying. And he was just an angry, arrogant man, and he would target the young staff in the office, particularly the graduates, and he would call them into this conference room, and there were a lot of glass windows, and he would sit us down, sit people down, and he would just tear, tear us to shreds. He would just lay into people, just rip into them verbal abuse. It would be the job of the guy who sat nearest the conference room door to get up and close the door so you couldn't hear the shouting as much and it was still muffled and you could still see what was going on. And this was just a, almost a ritual that he went through regularly within the office. But what's interesting, and this is the folly of this kind of wisdom, is what he never realized is how much this was hurting the company. Not just people, but the company. 
We wouldn't go to him and ask questions about projects because we'd be too intimidated by him or we just didn't want the battle. So then people aren't performing at their best. Staff morale's terrible. The company couldn't even attract the staff they wanted sometimes. People insisted on being consultants rather than staff because they didn't want proximity to this guy. And what he didn't realize is that by, he, he maybe he thought he was this great leader or great industry captain or whatever he thought. In reality, it was this false wisdom that was hurting himself damaging people and damaging the very company he was trying to build. And he didn't see it because there was a blindness there. But there's selfish ambition and bitter envy at work. And James says it's false wisdom. It's false wisdom. It's the opposite of the wisdom that comes from above. But how many people do we know that live their lives pursuing that kind of wisdom? And so finally then, we've had the roots of envy, we've had the branches, that's what I was describing, the branches of envy, the kind of person, the kind of disposition these two different types of wisdom produce. And then James talks about, where does all this lead? What kind of life does does wisdom produce? What kind of lives do these two different types of wisdom produce? The leaves, the fruit of wisdom. Have a look in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. There's a whole cluster of words there that we could unpack, all flowing out of humility, aren't they? You can just hear what James is describing as this other-centered way of living rather than a self-centered way of living. But one word that's particularly important there, and James uses it twice, is the word peace. It comes from the Hebrew word shalom, and we talk about shalom a lot here at Shore. Uh, the word means not just a feeling of inner peace, like Kung Fu Panda. It means peace in relationships, peace that is actually cosmic in its scope, reconciled relationships between humanity and God, between people and themselves, between people and one another, a peace that ripples out from individuals through marriages, families, communities, groups, nations, eventually to fill the world. And this wasn't this the vision of the prophets in the Old Testament, a world that eventually God would bring about that is full of his shalom, full of his peace, where there would be these harmonious, reconciled relationships between humans and God, self, others, the world. That's the vision of Scripture for the world that God is one day going to bring about. And what James is describing here, this is fantastic. He's saying wisdom has always got an eye on shalom. Wisdom is not an end in itself. Wisdom is not something God gives us so we can just be wise. He doesn't breathe this in our lives so that we can just walk around going, what a wise person I am. God cultivates wisdom in our lives so that we will be shalom makers in the world. Wisdom is a tool in the service of God's shalom. Its intended end, its intended telos, is always bringing about shalom. And again, this is how you tell a person of wisdom. They're seeking to bring shalom into whatever situation they're a part of. Not necessarily through grand gestures, but they're a person who looks for the ways to bring about that reconciliation between people and God, between people and one another. They're bridge builders, people of wisdom, always looking for consensus, always looking to to bring people together across disagreement, across disputes, across divides, always looking, how can I bring people together? How can I bring another taste of God's shalom, God's wonderful peace into the world, into this family, into this church, into my community? They are justice makers. They are peacemakers. They are people of shalom. Wisdom is a means to the end, which is 
shalom. That's how we need to think about it. It's not an end in itself. And so no surprise that when you get to false wisdom, it's exactly the opposite. And James says in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find what? Disorder. It's the opposite of peace. It's the opposite of shalom. See, these two trees, they're just completely different. They look the same on the slide. They're completely different. Disorder. Where there's false wisdom, where someone is driven by selfish ambition and bitter envy, eventually there's disorder. They put strain on relationships. They divide and they polarize people, and they lead to a fracturing of shalom. They lead to a disturbing of God's shalom, moving against the grain of creation rather than with the grain of creation and shalom. They're people of disorder. Where you see people who are divisive, people who just have a way of splitting relationships, putting strain and tension on relationships, it's not a person of wisdom. It's a person of disorder. It's a person of false wisdom, as James would say, because wisdom is always in the service of shalom. I'll tell you what I find so interesting about this. When you step back and you think about wisdom, you think, okay, wisdom, deep roots in the fear of God, the branches of humility, the leaves of shalom. You know, the, and I'm racking my brain trying to think, who would be the best example of this kind of wisdom? You know who I think it is? Other than Jesus? James. You know, honestly, James. This is the beauty of this book is that James is not just writing this stuff. He's not just going, let me tell you a few things about wisdom. He's living it out. He lived a life of wisdom. I want to tell you just one quick story about James. And you can read, because we can sketch from the New Testament a fairly reliable biographic sketch of James's life. And I did that in the first message in this series, but there's one little story I didn't tell you. It's from Acts 15. You don't need to turn there, but, but you can read it in your own time. But let me just tell you the story, because it demonstrates beautifully how James himself lives out the wisdom that he's calling us to have. The background to the story is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, and Barnabas have been off on this missions trip around Turkey. They've been off planting churches, and scores of Gentiles have come to faith. Numerous Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have become followers of Jesus. It's wonderful. And so now you've got all these churches out there that are full of Gentiles as well as Jews all over Turkey. And Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem, well, Antioch first, and report back, and everybody's excited about all these Gentiles coming to faith, and isn't this wonderful, and the church is growing. But there's some people, some Jewish Christians who are unhappy because they say, hey, it's all very well for these Gentiles to be coming to faith. What about the law? What about the Jewish law? What about circumcision? What about Sabbath? What about diet? What about ritual purity? Can't just have Gentiles coming in freely. Sure, it's, it's, it's fundamental to believe in Jesus, but what about the law, X, Y, and Z? Surely they've got to keep these laws as well. Now, this caused a lot of dispute. We might not think that's a big issue. This is a huge issue, a huge issue right through the New Testament, in fact. It, it threatened to split the church right there before the church had barely even got going. So a huge big summit meeting is called in Jerusalem. We call it the Jerusalem Council. Everybody's there. James is there because he was the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time. Peter's there. Paul's there. It's like a who's who of the New Testament. And they have this whole big conference about these Gentiles that are coming in and what should be done about them. Peter speaks in this meeting. Paul speaks in this meeting. And then James speaks last. And that in itself should tell you something about wisdom, right? Isn't the wise person often the one who speaks last in the meeting? 
So James then eventually speaks. And let me just read you what he says because this is just wisdom is, is all over it. Uh, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he quotes a whole lot from Amos. I won't read all that. Uh, And then he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, that might sound a little bit strange, but let me just unpack what's going on here. Just think about those three layers of wisdom. First of all, the fear of the Lord. James has got that. You know, James had this view of life with God at the center of it. That's why he's able to see all these Gentiles coming in and he's able to look at Amos, the prophet, and go, hang on. What Amos said back then, that's exactly what's happening. Because he had this God lens through which to see the world. And so he recognized what the prophets have said about the Gentiles drawing near to God. That's now happening through Paul's mission trip to Turkey. Fantastic. So he can celebrate this. You can only do that if you've got a theistic view of the world and you're open to seeing this is my father's world and I want to see my father's work in this world. So the fear of the Lord. And then he's got this humility of saying... Verse 19, it's, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles who are turning to God. See, James could have stood on his Jewishness and said, you know, really, it is through the doorway of Judaism these Gentiles should come because we are God's people. We are superior and we're, 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 we're the main deal here and they can kind of have a sideline seat. But James acts in humility and he says, it's fantastic that these Gentiles are coming. To faith. It's what we should welcome them in. We should not make it difficult for them. James has the humility, even though he's part of the chosen people, to recognize and celebrate that people of all nations and all cultures, every tribe and tongue and nation, are coming to God. And he doesn't need to stand on any sense of self superiority about it. He can just be glad that the nations are coming in and he's not putting himself above them at all. He wants to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ on equal footing. He's got humility, right? Not putting himself first. He's looking for others. But then James says this interesting thing at the end. He talks about how what we should be doing is requiring these Gentiles to observe certain laws, to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from eating Uh, animals that have been strangled and so on. And you think, well, James, what are you doing? It sounds like you've gone back to the law. It sounds like you're introducing the law again. But here's the thing. James is not proposing these restrictions for theological reasons. He knows that theologically there is no need for the Gentiles to keep any of these laws except for abstaining from sexual immorality. That transcends the Jewish law. But these particular dietary requirements, he knows that's not a salvation issue. But what's he thinking of? Shalom, right? Hasn't James got his eye on the shalom of these churches? Isn't he thinking about all these churches now in Turkey where you've got Jews and Gentiles sitting next to each other in church? You've got Jew and Gentiles sitting around the table at dinners for eight. And what's happening? They're dishing up some meat with blood in it. They're dishing up some meat of animals that had been strangled. These things would have offended the conscience of good Jewish people. Now, James could have said, these Jewish people got to get over themselves. You just got to grow up. And recognize this is not, these are not important issues anymore. But what James is doing is saying, let's just have an eye on shalom. 
Let's just think about what is going to cultivate shalom here. It's a lot for our Jewish brothers and sisters to get used to. The fact that these laws are no longer needed or important and so on. A lot's changed. Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. Let's just give everybody a bit of grace here. Let's just have some, have, have some thought about shalom. And if these Gentiles show up with all this meat that the Jews consider to be offensive, that's going to fracture the church right there. So how about these Gentiles adopt a few of these dietary laws for the sake of their brothers and sisters? Not because it's a salvation issue, not because it's going to affect anything of the way they stand before God, but simply to enhance the relationships between Jew and Gentile within the local church. That's why James is saying what he's saying. And honestly, we all have benefited from this. Because we may have maybe one or two Jewish people here, I don't know. Most of us here are going to be Gentiles, right? Non-Jewish people. If this had gone the other way, the Jewish and Gentile church would have split right there and history would be very different for us. Very different for us Gentiles. So we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to James for the wisdom that he showed at the Jerusalem Council. James had the wisdom of knowing how to act in humility how to act out of the fear of the Lord, but how to act in a way which would enhance and promote shalom in the community and among relationships. He was a man of incredible wisdom. And so when he writes about wisdom, he writes from a place of knowing and practicing this kind of wisdom in his own life. And I know that's an example from a different time and a different place. But wisdom doesn't always have to be grand gestures, does it? We just need to think in our lives, what are the opportunities for us to show this kind of wisdom to one another in situations we find ourselves in? What does this kind of wisdom look like for you in relationships with people at school, at uni, at work, in your flat, in your family? What does this kind of wisdom look like? Maybe it just it looks like listening and appreciating where the other person is coming from rather than, I'm so sure I'm right, I'm just going to charge ahead. Maybe it's a slowing down and listening and hearing the stories of some other people. Maybe you're in a situation where you are so convinced that you've got this right, you've got this entitlement, you, you deserve this thing, and maybe on paper you do. Maybe there's wisdom in thinking about what's going to promote shalom here. What would be a cross shaped form of wisdom that puts the other ahead of myself, that promotes the interests of the other person ahead of my own interests? How do I lay down my rights? That's what Jesus did. How do I lay down my sense of entitlement, my agenda, my deserving? And how do I work towards shalom? Sometimes it's big decisions like the Jerusalem Council. Other times it's really ordinary conversations and interactions, small decisions that we make. doesn't mean giving up truth doesn't mean there's not a time to stand for certain convictions, but it means always we've got an eye on shalom. We've got an eye on where this is leading. So may we be people of wisdom who have a deep, deep wisdom that is grounded in a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May we be people of humility, people who put the other ahead of ourselves, people who look to the wisdom of the cross, not the wisdom of the world. And may we always have an eye on shalom, always asking how we can bring about another taste, another piece, another glimpse of God's shalom in anticipation of the day when he fills this world with his peace, with his shalom. And we all look forward to that, right? May God grant us wisdom as individuals. May he grant us wisdom as a church community. 
as we honor Christ, the one in whom the fullness of wisdom truly dwells. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you now as the God of all wisdom, and we do exactly what James asks us to do, and that is we ask you for wisdom. And you've, you've said, Lord, your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, and God, I'm, I'm the first this morning to put up my hand and say, I do. I lack wisdom. I wish I was a person of greater wisdom than I am. And so, God, I'm, I'm asking you this morning, and we're asking you this morning for wisdom. And I thank you, God, that just as you've invited us to ask for it, you have equally promised that you will give it generously, that you won't give it begrudgingly, you won't give it reluctantly, but you'll give us the wisdom that we need. And so we stand on the promise of your word this morning. And as your people, we ask you, Lord, give us hearts of wisdom. God, give us those deep, deep roots, that deep tap root that goes all the way down into the fear of the Lord. Give us those branches of character in our lives where we are people of humility before you and others. And would you bear the fruit of shalom in our lives, in our relationships, and in our church. We look to you, God. We lack wisdom. Think of so many times in our lives we wish we'd had it. We come to you, Father, and we just receive afresh from you this morning hearts and minds that are truly wise. Make us people of wisdom, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.